Hi friends and listeners of the Development by David podcast. This week I've been too unwell to record, so I thought there's no better time to share with you a podcast in which I was a guest in, and that was the wonderful University Challenge podcast by previous guest Tony Kent. Tony's podcast, University Challenge, implores the notion that you don't need to go to university to have a rewarding and fulfilling and successful career. She uses case studies of different people from different walks of life to bring this narrative to life. I think it's a really important podcast for social mobility and I was so delighted to be asked as a guest. I not only share my career but I share the the origin story of David McIntosh, the very question that I ask on my podcast. And I think this might fascinate you because there's a lot of hardship and a lot of highlights that I've endured to get to where I am, I guess. I even open up about speaking with the Queen which uh, was a monumental occasion last year. I hope you enjoy hearing the inner workings of Development by David or David McIntosh. And if you enjoy this episode, please, please check out Tony's other episodes. They're all fantastic. The podcast is going strength to strength. But for now, here's me on University Challenge. Enjoy. you're going to love this episode. Would you know what to say if you found yourself on a Zoom call with Her Majesty the Queen in your early 20s? Well, my guest David McIntosh did. He's Scotland's first ever management consulting apprentice at KPMG and the co-chair of the firm's UK Social Mobility Network. And his life story so far makes for powerful listening. So much so, he was chosen to speak with Her Majesty as part of the firm's 150th anniversary celebrations. In our conversation, David explains how growing up in receipt of free school meals and with uniform and holidays paid for by veteran charities empowered him to flip his DNA and embark on a quest to become an accountant. He also shares how the work of the Social Mobility Foundation opened up access to opportunities that may otherwise not have been visible or available to him. And he talks about the impact this had in setting his trajectory towards management consulting aligned with public service. We talk poverty, using humour to deflect attention, how counting coppers as a child can be a clue to a future career and there's lots to take away on the value of being unconventional and the power of having a North Star. I really hope you enjoyed it. Uh, David, thank you very much for agreeing to come on the podcast. I'm excited about this one. Tony, it's a pleasure. I love what the podcast stands for. I love what you stand for. You're a great human. I was so delighted to speak with you previously on my podcast. So as soon as you asked me to come on, of course, it was a no-brainer uh, to chat again. Excellent. Um, so we've spoken before. We met via LinkedIn in lockdown, which is a very <laughs> cool thing. It's, it's, you know, one good thing came out of social media for me in uh, lockdown was I made some really good connections. Me too. And you're one of them. Mm. Likewise. Um, so for the listeners today and the listeners to come in the future, um, please tell us, what's your name and what job do you do today? My name is David McIntosh. I'm an apprentice management consultant at KPMG. I'm also the co-chair of our social mobility network at the firm. And I'm also, I guess, a podcast host in my spare time. Excellent. And do you promote your podcast. What's it called? The Development by David podcast. Excellent. And it's a great listen because I've been on it. Um, what's a management consultant for those who aren't in the know? I guess it's one of those arbitrary terms. Um, the way I describe it in like the most fundamental way is like either being a doctor 
or a personal trainer for a business. If that makes any sense. Yeah. Okay. My business is sick. <laughs> and <laughs> fat. <laughs> exactly. And reduce the waste, make it lean, uh, reduce the processes that are not serving the business. Essentially yeah. what it is, is basically understanding the symptoms of a business or how it's currently feeling and understanding what its desired state should be and taking them on like a kind of transformation from A to B. Um, yeah. So that could mean like solving their problems, finding a way to kind of spark growth within the organization, perhaps yeah. implementing softwares or different um, procedures and processes, perhaps changing up the organizational chart. Uh, but essentially that taking a business from its current state to its desired state um, and you can do that across all different functions whether that's their finance function their HR function perhaps their workforce or um, at, at board level um, so that's how I would kind of describe it in a nutshell. That's a great analogy brilliant just need to get you into the schools now because <laughs> I just described it perfectly um, okay now you're an apprentice management consultant how far in are you to your apprenticeship so i am about to embark on my fifth year yeah my fifth year um so my i guess i'm insane to my program it's a six-year program yeah for the kpmg 360 program and the reason it is 360 is because the first three years you spend yeah. kind of rotating around all our different service lines and within your fourth year, that's where you specialize in a home department. And that's where you do the reciprocal qualification. So I guess I've been across audit, tax, restructuring for the first three years, which yeah. are other service lines. Um, well, not, not restructuring anymore. We sold off that part of the business, but uh, I rotated around there. And for me, audit and tax are very res retrospective departments. Mm -hmm. For example, audit, you're basically testing the integrity of a financial statement that belongs mm -hmm. to like a... A listed company on the stock exchange and to yeah. reassure stakeholders you need to make sure that those numbers and those transactions are accurate to a reasonable extent and for me the end user of those reports are typically someone who has disposable enough income to invest and that's not yeah. someone who i wanted to have an impact on yeah. uh as as weird as that sounds um because my kind of overarching north star purpose is to do good for others and yeah. although that is reassuring people it's just not the kind of impact that i want to leave so um, I guess in 2019, um, at KPMG, we had one of these kind of office cascades where it was like a lunchtime talk where some members of the different parts of the business would come and display the highlights of their department. And yeah. a director came along and talked about public sector management consulting. I didn't even know yeah. we did that at the time. Um, but she beautifully outlaid like the impact that has on society. And I knew that's where I wanted to be uh, because it's forward thinking, it's strategic thinking. Um, yeah. And I can like really help out on, for example, the public service landscape that my family relied upon to like yeah. the benefit system and stuff like that. So for me, it was a bit of a no brainer. Um, yeah. So I am Scotland's first management consulting apprentice at KPMG and I get to pave my own way. And hopefully there'll be more apprentices coming through that, that more unconventional route. Wow. That is awesome. I was going to say you're my first Scottish podcast guest. It's not, it's not as good. Um, so. <laughs> That's um, so. This is, you know, a huge organisation. It's uh, a role that could have significant impact on a business, a public sector organisation, public sector service provider. Um, let's go back to when you were at secondary school. So, where um, 
you were maybe thinking about careers and what was coming next. What's your memories of secondary school? You know, I was thinking about this recently in the lead up to this podcast, and I realised for me, there was a story of um, three thirds. So the first third of my you know, childhood school, I was a, such an introvert. Mm. I was scared of change when I moved to, from primary school to secondary school. I was terrified. I had one friend uh, at primary school, and when I went into secondary school, he went off and found another group of friends. And I was introduced to those friends, but I was just so scared, full of anxiety, that I distracted myself. And I used to eat my lunch under the stairs by myself. Oh, <laughs> <laughs> oh now I'm going to cry. <laughs> What I think there was a reason for that was because of perhaps my socioeconomic background. Mm. I didn't want to make a noise. I didn't want to disrupt. I didn't want to be flamboyant. I didn't want to attract attention. And by my mate moving off and meeting new friends, that would attract attention to me and people would maybe find out who I was. Not like I was a Batman or Superman or something, but I come from like a low socioeconomic socioeconomic background and I don't want that part of my identity exposed to my full cohort. So so the first, first few years, I had no friends. Um, I would go to school, leave when the bell rang, didn't want to make a noise. And then I realized as I became more confident, and this is the second third of um, my experience at school, I started to find humor, mm-hmm. which is strange. And I was known as like the, fu- like the funny guy or the, the, the guy with the kind of taboo humor. <laughs> and funny guy under the stairs. <laughs> <laughs> the funny guy under the stairs, but I became like the class clown. Yeah. And perhaps with, with I don't want to say I was a bully, but I would slag people in the class. And I think that was me deflecting attention yeah. away from myself to other people. Mm-hmm. And I would use like, humor as a coping mechanism for perhaps the lack of confidence I had or the socioeconomic status that I had, mm-hmm. or perhaps some of the problems I had going, going on at home. Mm-hmm. Um, so for the time I was really kind of the class clown and a bit um, a bit too vibrant, that's yeah. such a thing. Um, yeah. I was the- I was doing the complete opposite. I was attracting attention, but then deflecting it to others by being a bit of a class clown and a bit of a, a bully. And oh, I wouldn't say I was a bully. I, would, I was never pulled up for bullying, so on, but I would just deflect humor uh, to, to others in the class. And then the third um, phase of my school career as such was when I was supported by the Social Mobility Foundation and I was taken mm-hmm. to London on work experience at KPMG Canadian Wharf. Yeah. And this was the first time I'd really been out of Scotland. It was the first time I wore a suit, albeit a Primark suit that didn't yeah. match. It was a random blazer and a random pair of trousers. Yeah. Uh, previously, my even my school uniform was provided for by like veteran uh, support clothing grants and stuff like that. Um, so obviously, I had this predisposition of um, an accountant might be a white middle class man or management consultant might be a white middle class man, and I don't yeah. really relate to some of those characteristics. Mm. Um, but thankfully for this for the Social Mobility Foundation, they took me to Canary Wharf, and yeah. I entered a wonderful place such as KPMG, where we do really pr- like pride ourselves in having um, such a diverse workforce across yeah. all different characteristics. And it made me realise that well, perhaps I could be an accountant. And so I went there during summer, and before that, I wore baggy hoodies to school. I had long, slicked hair. Um, yeah. I guess I didn't have much self-respect in terms of my appearance. Mm. Uh, I was quite overweight, actually, um, mm. at the time. And during the summer break, meeting K- people at KPMG, realising how close that opportunity could be for someone like me, and seeing the city and having something 
having something to aspire to um, really changed my trajectory. So I came back during the summer. I think it was my 16th birthday. I lost so much weight. I got a really neat haircut and I went yeah. back to school wearing blazer, tie, briefcase. And yeah. I was I was so dead set on where I wanted to achieve and where I wanted to strive for. And I applied for the KPMG um, 360 program straight from school and I applied to uh, universities across uh, Glasgow and Edinburgh and I got full offers and got offered mm. a role at KPMG so that was really the pivot in my life um, and I also guess there was another pivot in my life there was kind of two pivots that one mm. touch point and then something much much earlier than that when I was around the age of 11 where where my neighbor sorry I was I used to have this little job I would sell like like baked items around the houses yeah um probably a net loss to be honest um but I had <laughs> I had pound coins and pound coins um yeah or what we call them in Scotland coppers yeah uh, and I was counting the coppers and my uncle said to me David you could be an accountant they make a lot of money yeah and for me at that point I, all my mum and dad's health issues were based because of their financial outcome I thought mm. I could be an accountant and with a desire to feel important I remember my next door neighbor said to me Oh, his mother said to me, David, what do you want to be when you grow up? And I said, accountant. And his mum replied, but David, your mum and dad aren't smart or they don't have a good job or they didn't go to university. Mm. How could you be an accountant? And I think that was round. I think that stuck with me when I entered that third phase, that mantra. Yeah. And, I, and I did at that point. I took advanced higher business, which is not even a, it's beyond the level of requirement that you need for university. And right. I also took an open university course in my last year at school as well. So I think that one early touch point with my neighbor and my uncle and mm. that mantra that really accelerated when I did visit KPMG when I was 15 or 16 and I married the two together and I ended up becoming um, I guess much more resilient and much more thriving than I was before. And um, a couple of things you mentioned there uh, struck me so one was you talked about the veterans um, charity helping and and, and equally, as with you, so um, I remember the local authority paid for me to go on holiday. Yeah, I don't don't know that that happens anymore. Um, and I'm intrigued. So your dad was in the armed forces or the military. What happened? Yeah. How, how did that come about? So my dad uh, is a Falklands veteran. Uh, so he served in the Falklands, served in Northern Ireland. He also guarded at Buckingham Palace as one of the guards in Bearskin. Uh, <laughs> so at... he's in people's photo albums somewhere. <laughs> everywhere, <laughs> everywhere, all across the globe. Yeah. Um, he also tripped the colour so yeah, many wow. times, maybe 10 times. Wow. Uh, served as a guard at Princess Diana's wedding as well. Wow. Um, he's got an accommodation of bravery for saving lives in a London fire. He was, wow. um, he saved, oh, no, sorry, he didn't save a life, but um, he, a life was lost in his arms, the bare arms, right. during a terrorism attack at Ebury wow. Bridge Road in London. Um, so all of these, and my dad's had such a hard life before this, domestic mm. abuse, severe poverty. Like mm. they lived in a, a tenement or a, sorry, a, a flat where him and his five siblings shared the same bed and used uh, workwear jackets as duvets. So when I use the term disadvantage, I'm really cautious about it now because mm. I grew up with all the advantages that he didn't. Yeah, um, I think this kind of cocktail of his early life and then the army kind of put him in a bit of a distressing situation once he left the army. So we were quite, um, I guess, socioeconomically less privileged. And mm. that's how we were engaged with these kind of veteran support. 
um, yeah. charities that included free holidays too. Um, yeah. And uh, free school calls. Yeah. Um, we, we may have been on the same holiday because we did chat before. We, we went to um, Butlins in Ayrshire, um, which I don't <laughs> think is Butlins anymore. Uh, but I remember our travel being paid for and the accommodation being paid for and thinking, why are we going all the way to Scotland for our holiday? But I think that was what we were offered. So that's what we did. <laughs> and I remember going to Berwick upon Tweed as well, to a haven. Oh, yeah. Um, and having uh, food vouchers to feed us at the restaurant. And mm. then my dad's probably spending all his disposable income on the bingo at 6 p.m. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Um, there's something I might come back to in a minute. Uh, but this is about you. Tell me about the Social Mobility Foundation. How did you connect with them? How did they find you? It's a very lucky streak, streak of fate, or whatever, you, whatever the coin is, whatever the, yeah. the, the term is. But um, essentially, I had this really close friend who was a year above me at school, and he received he received very similar um, support the year before. Right. And he said, David, you want to be an accountant, don't you? I did this work experience placement through this charity. I hope you don't mind me asking, but do you get free school meals? And I said, yes, I do get free school meals. And he said, let me send you a link, sign up through this application form and see where it goes. Uh, and what actually happened, I don't think I actually got a position on the work experience. I think someone pulled out and I got the the uh, wow. space that, that they were meant to. So I think I was the only person from Scotland on this work experience program and wow. I was shipped down to London. Um, yeah. First time I had left, first time I used public transport myself too. So really wow um and i mean you talked about how that had inspired you and but that's real kind of fish out of water stuff but you know off on the train for how many hours yeah eight hours five six hours i said yeah so and and did they um take did you have like a host family where did you stay while you were down there so i stayed I was collected by a coordinator from the Social Mobility Foundation at London yeah. Euston. Yeah. And I think when I almost felt like an evacuee at the time, to be honest. Yeah. <laughs> That's what it felt like. Um, but I was collected by an individual and then we had to wait for the other students coming into London. Yeah. So we would go to maybe King's Cross and then go to the other stations and collect them in one big group. And we yeah. were taken to Queen Mary University and we were put up okay. in the university halls. So wow. that was... Yeah, that one week was kind of my miniature um, university experience yeah. where I was staying with loads of people just like me. And I actually still keep in contact with a couple of them um, yeah. who are on completely different paths and different things, who have been to uni and stuff, stuff like that. But um, yeah, like I said, it was like experiencing uni. Uh, yeah. I condensed one week. Wow. Um, <laughs> I mean, that sounds full on, actually. Um. But it was great because they would take us to like the cinema at night yeah. and they would pay, take us out to the restaurants and they would um yeah. take us to all the tourist spots and it was like a real holiday for me not yeah. one of the ones I had down the west coast of Scotland it was a real holiday um yeah and I know how much these kind of extracurricular activities um they strengthen you as a human being and they give you talking points to take into the office and it mm. builds culture capital so these experiences really do lead to opportunities at some point yeah yeah absolutely um, and was there any expectation? So when you had, so you'd gone and done your kind of uh, trip down to London and you'd seen what goes on at KPMG and then you've applied for the apprenticeship programme. What was your 
parents or your schools? I guess there's, there's two things, uh, strands to that. What was the expectation from your parents and from your school of what you would go on to do post GCSEs? So I guess, and, and just to note, uh, 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 in Scotland, we do national fives, which are the equivalent to GCSEs, and ah, we do hires, okay. which are the equivalent to A-levels. But I guess, like you said, there's two, there's a dichotomy, there's two strands. So if I talk about my parents' expectations, I must say they didn't have any at all. Mm-hmm. And not because they were disengaged mm-hmm. and they didn't care, but I just think even to set school exams, I was still a tier above their education level so I don't think they felt not responsible I don't think they felt like they had the, the, enough cheek to complain if I didn't or did sit these exams uh, because it yeah. was a level about beyond what they uh achieved yeah um so f- perhaps they viewed that whatever David gets in these exams is a bit of a bonus because it's more than what we have I'm not sure um either that or they were just so disengaged I'm not sure but that's yeah. my kind of presumption um yeah. but the, that, the great thing about that though is that it's either there's a dichotomy there of it's either paralyzing you fall into the mindset and the inner beliefs mm. and the the circle of life that your parents do because that's yeah. what you see that's their expectations or there's the complete other side of that which you flip your dna it's empowering you want to become the opposite of where you come from so you yeah. take it as an opportunity because you have no expectations you, be, you can yeah. become whatever you want mm. um whereas i can see like my peers their father or their mother expected them to become a doctor, an engineer, and that was against their values and their passion and what would give them fulfillment. And I've seen them go off into university courses that they've then dropped out of or into jobs that they've then quit because it's not aligned with their purpose. It's only aligned with their parents' expectations. So I think there's a dichotomy over there. It's either paralyzing or empowering. And for me, it was really empowering. Uh, uh, So I guess that's my parents, the reflection of my, my, my parents' expectations of me. Uh, my school's expectations of me, um, I think they had high expectations of me, and I think they expected me to go to university. Mm. And when I told them I was joining KPMG, and bearing in mind I took my telephone interview from school and the head teacher's office is where I took it, um, because I didn't really have feet up on the on. desk. <laughs> right, get out. <laughs> <laughs> that's, that's essentially what it was like. Um, <laughs> most, most of the teachers were quite—I don't want to use the word disappointed, but surprised that I took an apprenticeship over university because even at that point I would believe society and it maybe still does sees apprenticeships as a lesser cousin to university mm. um, and I, I think that the kind of overarching statement was but David you're smart you have potential why aren't you going to university and yeah. the thing is it was completely a choice it was control I had control of my outcome at this point and I chose an apprenticeship over over university um, so I, I guess I didn't meet their expectations I don't know if they were trying because maybe the, the, the ARAM and they were trying to increase their university stats I don't know if that was their agenda Um, but for me an apprenticeship was way more appealing than university to me because not only does it aid my socioeconomic status I could earn a salary but I was so so dead set on a career in accountancy and saying no to an opportunity from a big four would have been silly and in reflection now I have no besides besides the lifestyle of a university student I don't think I missed out on anything um, mm. I really I've really enjoyed the last four years and I've um, I would never ever ever change the route that I've taken no and that you, you answered the question I was going to ask you next actually was what was it about the apprenticeship that sold you um, and thinking so you are the first person I've had on the podcast that is 
think I've got this right, well, is within an apprenticeship framework now. Um, so it'd be interesting to know a bit more about how that works. So as you go through that five, six year process, I'm interested in, do you get things like salary reviews? And also what happens at the end of it? Do you come out with a qualification and or yeah. a job? What's that like? So uh, the, the framework of my apprenticeship is that the first three years you do a qualification called AAT, which mm -hmm. stands for the Association of Accounting Technicians. And then yeah. when you specialize into one of the different routes, you take the reciprocal qualification that marries that. And for yeah. me, it's SEMA, the Chartered Institute of Management Accountants. Yeah. Um, so I'll become a, essentially a chartered accountant at the end of my program um, after these exams. In terms of salary, we do expect a raise every single year and, and yeah. a bonus. And there's loads of yeah. great staff perks, such as free lunch and day off for your birthday, um, yeah. which is fantastic. But so the kind of increase in pay was incremental towards the beginning but when we specialized depending on what department you go in um the, the salaries vary but i for someone my age i earn more than any of my friends um yeah and i don't worry is not a money is not a concern for me anymore um i'm not on the millions of pounds but in terms of where i come from in my background and how i live my life i have excess which is fantastic and i make sure to distribute that back to my sister and my family and my yeah. dad i make sure to support it at home uh, but I guess yeah. towards the end of the apprenticeship, when you finish your last exam and finish the pro uh, professional qualification, we are instantly promoted to what we call an assistant manager, which is the yeah. next grade above where we are at just now. So instant promotion if you pass those exams and finish the apprenticeship. Awesome. I mean, it sounds like a no-brainer to me. And the point you make actually about the... Um, uni versus apprenticeship is something that I have seen from a parent's point of view where our local school sent an email round so my daughter is sitting her GCSEs in May it'll be coming um so that's your was it fives did you call it fives? national national fives national fives and we we'd had an email about the previous results going oh yay yay for sixth form these five children named these five named children are going to Oxbridge then there are some kids going to unis uh, that Russell group and then there is a bit, oh, and some are doing apprenticeships. So I am that parent. I emailed back going, excuse me, I think you'll find that what is important is that children get the outcomes that they want and that everyone gets added value. And we did get a follow-up email to say, ooh, these kids got great apprenticeships with, and these are huge, like you say, big four consulting firms, technology firms. And I think it probably says something about our education system um where i don't think it's an in, intentionally done if you see what i mean yeah. i think it is just a, a lack of comprehension that to do what you've done is a phenomenal achievement and a desirable route for a lot of people it's because it's regarded as conventional and traditional right it's just mm. from the way we've been raised and how society's evolved yeah. one thing that i see is and again, to take us back to social mobility, when we have, when I spoke about that, those dichotomies of people, the those who fall into the traits and the beliefs of their, their family, and then the other ones, the ones like me who feel empowered by not having expectations. I believe those individuals are one of the most resilient and striving individuals that you, you can come across. And, but what, what I see in, in that aspect in terms of the students, they bypass the thought of an apprenticeship 
because they've got the striving nature and they're doing they're, they're willing to do anything to flip their circumstances yeah. in their head they don't even consider an apprenticeship mm. because university has been put on a pedestal by society for the last 50 100 years so yeah. if they're these striving individuals they're going to go to the nth degree and for them that means university that's the epitome of success and social mobility yeah. but the thing is an apprenticeship is a greater vehicle for social mobility yeah. than university there's no debt you earn, earn a salary um you meet professionals and build a network things yeah. that you wouldn't do if you went to university uh so hopefully podcasts like this podcast like mine and yeah. uh, social media will encourage those to see apprenticeships as an equal cousin to university and not a lesser cousin for sure yeah i think that's a great way to frame it they're equally as valid important impactful and i did have a thought there of and i know you kind of i guess you know there will be wherever you are you build a network um but for you in industry now already in five years in you've got a network of people of all kinds of pay grades across all sorts of organizations within a huge organization you are so many steps ahead <laughs> definitely um and I, I wouldn't even have the podcast that i have in my spare time without the networks that i've created at work mm. um and the amount of opportunities for example speaking with the queen or starting a social mobility network or um <laughs> wait wait david <laughs> okay so um just you know drop line there just speaking with the queen um this is a good point then to say you've got the apprenticeship thing now doing what you do has enabled you to do some massive massive things that are about way more than being a management consultant tell me about the queen i guess can I take it back to its kind of formation and how that opportunity came around? It was more of like an avalanche effect or a compound interest effect. Yeah, yeah. It kind of relates to, to networking. Yeah. yeah. Um, I guess, like I said, the Social Mobility Foundation supported me tremendously before mm. I joined KPMG. And the first thing that I wanted to do, and I think I still have the email trail, the very first week I was uh, embarked on my KPMG journey, I wanted to give back. I wanted mm. to understand what KPMG do in the social mobility space. And it turns out KPMG have been in the top three uh, in the Social Mobility Employers Index since its origination. We've won numerous awards. We're one of the first firms to uh, incorporate the living wage. Um, one of the first firms to publish workforce socioeconomic data. So we're already doing great things, but up in Scotland, I seen quite a lot of white space. Mm -hmm. So I started doing a lot of volunteering individually with the Social Mobility Foundation. I guided two university students from university all the way to employment at KPMG. And they both started in a London office. Um, but when I would bring up all these kind of public speaking initiatives and these mentoring initiatives to my performance manager, I remember a vivid conversation of, David, what is social mobility? And to how did you get involved? And although we have these great achievements and um, all the recognition at KPMG UK wide on social mobility, I realized within the office or perhaps the department I was in at the time, um, it was a bit behind the curve. So. I took the initiative to start our Social Mobility Scotland network at the time, and we gained 75 mentors across our Aberdeen, Edinburgh, and Glasgow office, offices to give to the Social Mobility Foundation for them to pair up with aspiring uh, accounting students who were 16 or 17 yeah. at school. And that kind of gave me the visibility as a social mobility guy. Uh, yeah. So I started championing my own story. Uh, and that led on to me doing this, a 
conference call or a, a presentation called This Is Me, where I speak about every vulnerability in my life, about the benefits that my parents were on, their mental health struggles. Um, and it kind of catalyzes into like a lesson or a takeaway where it's like, I, I emphasize that not everyone has the same access to opportunity. Mm. Um, we are unaware at times or oblivious to the kind of underlying processes that we take uh, for granted based on our background. The kind of highlight sentence I say is that I taught my parents how to write a CV when they should have taught me. And yeah. it made the firm a bit more aware that, or some of the colleagues aware that they have certain privileges that we can be selfless with, but also empowered other colleagues um, to start sharing their story. I remember hearing comments like, David, you're so brave. I wish I could share my story. And my goal is for being like being transparent should be categorized as brave. That's my kind of end goal with the work I do with uh, within social mobility. So I guess I, I, I delivered that speech. Uh, and I guess that kind of gave me more recognition as a social mobility guy. I then, um, I then, attended our uh, KPMG Connect 2020 event, which was like an all-firm event in front of 18,000 people. And I was part of, yeah, uh, we have 18,000 colleagues and it was an all-firm event. And I yeah. did a panel session that was introduced by um, Katie Piper, the activist and model. Yeah. Um, so the, colleague were, the colleagues were aware of me as a public speaker again. Yeah. And I think KPMG were really invested in my social mobility journey. Mm. Uh, and as part of our as part of our celebrations for our 150th year, um, we ex anticipated uh, a royal visit, virtually, um, in December 2020. And I got an email saying, "David, we love your story. We've long listed you as a potential speaker for a potential upcoming royal visit. We're not sure if this is going to go ahead yet, but would you be interested?" And of course, I freaked out and said, "Yes, of course." Yeah. <laughs> and uh, the our internal comms team wanted to hear more about my story. And what they would do is they would create, I guess, case studies of all the yeah. potential speakers and then give that to the palace and the palace would choose who they want the queen to speak to. Mm. And lo and behold, I was one of the four, uh, which wow. was tremendous. And I guess in December 2020, uh, that's what happened. I told, K I told the queen my, uh, not only my KPMG story, but my social mobility story, which was uh, a fascinating experience. Yeah. Amazing that you and your dad have a royal connection as well. Yeah, it's... and I, I, I told the Queen that as well, and you could see how much that meant to her. Yeah, yeah. It, it, and it, I guess it sort of reminds you that, you know, as many of us that there are in the world and as spread out as we are, you're, you're not that far from, you know, like you're, you've spoken to the Queen. So... <laughs> So I'm only like, you know, a degree of separation away from the Queen in my special world. <laughs> <laughs> but like to, to bring that back, like I, I think sometimes success is really parallel to noise. The squeaky wheel gets the oil. And yeah. I think if it wasn't for me feeling empowered to share my story, I wouldn't have had that opportunity. It was a, yeah. like a compound interest effect of me having my name put in different pockets of the business and people becoming aware of me. And I think yeah. that's so what we do in, as those from a low socioeconomic background. Like I said in my, in my Genesis story, when I was first at school, I didn't want to disrupt. Disruption was bad. If I disrupted at home, if I asked to go to the cinema for pocket money, that was a bad thing. Um, so yeah. those from a low socioeconomic background tend to conceal their identity and not disrupt. They don't want to ask for a pay, pay rise or a promotion. And that's why we might yeah. see pay gaps in certain organisations. Mm -hmm. um, 
And the thing is, though, Tony, it's her duty to it's all of her duties to the world to be ourselves because only we can, only we can bring to the world our own stories. No one else can do that for us. It should be a duty that everyone, everyone undertakes. Um, and so I think making a noise and success um, are absolutely entangled. Absolutely. If somebody wanted to do what you've done um, from a professional perspective, they're thinking, God, this sounds cool. Apprenticeships like the idea of that. What would your advice to them be? Mm -hmm. I think what I dislike about the education system is that we're, we're almost forced to make a career lasting decision at the age of 15, 16, 17. <laughs> yeah. And we're, we're forced to make that decision based on, let's be serious, five years of cognitive, um, or at least, um, I, I only believe we're kind of cognizant after the age of 10, really. And we're, so we're based, we're forced to create a decision based on five years of lived experience. And especially someone from a low socioeconomic, low socioeconomic background, we haven't been those holidays, those worldwide travels. Yeah. We don't have uncles and aunties and family friends that are in different organisations. So we have mm -hmm. such a little pool of information to make that career-long, lifelong decision from. So I guess, based on your question, I would ensure that you're completely self-aware at that age. Um, if you fancy a career in accountancy, make sure you're, you're not half pregnant with it. Make sure that you've read all the literature, you've yeah. done all your research online, and you've found um, people in that realm to, to discuss with, to understand what the day-to-day, -day, what the eight hours per day actually looks like, and then perhaps find an apprenticeship that um, aligns with that. But equally, you can go into an apprenticeship not knowing what you want to do in life. Yeah. Like, for example, my apprenticeship is rotational. I didn't know about management consultancy when I was 16, 17 years old. I knew about accountancy. And yeah. by the nature of my, my program, I got to rotate around all these functions and meet all these people, create that noise, and ultimately lend, fall in, almost fall into a career that now gives me maximum purpose and maximum fulfillment. So I guess my advice is, if you don't have those networks, create them at that age and make sure to do so much research to understand if those eight hours that you will endure every single day the rest of, perhaps the rest of your life make sure there are eight hours that give you maximum fulfillment and what do you think has served you well today you, you know you are well I don't know early in career some people would say early in career yeah. but you know five years in nearly six years in um what has served you well so far I think What has served me well? I think what I'm, I wouldn't say I'm necessarily that intelligent or that bright, but what I do well, I believe I know what circumstance or environment or situation, the result I want sits in and I find someone that can get me a seat at that table. Yeah. Um, so I think networking is, is what has propelled everything for me. Um, and being a bit ruthless almost. Um, I guess as a 16 or 17 year old apprentice, we're still quite anxious from school. So we fall into an organization and like I said, we don't want to disrupt Yeah. and we want to fit in. Our peers are still perhaps got that high school mentality. And for me, I didn't, I found passion in being unconventional. For example, I set up 
the Social Mobility Scotland Network, and now chair the UK-wide Social Mobility Network. No one is doing similar things as that uh, in my cohort, besides a couple. Um, but I, I was just very ruthless of what I wanted to achieve, and I didn't want to, I guess, become conventional. Um, and I, I realized that as an apprentice, we, we do have expectations. But what that, that creates for us is perhaps sometimes convention, I guess we become similar versions of each other. Um, mm. So like I said, I wanted to be, embrace being my true self and being transparent. Uh, and I guess that's what's given me this kind of personal brand as an apprentice, uh, perhaps opposed to my yeah. uh, being, a, business, being authentic yeah. to myself and yeah. leveraging my networks is what served me, served me pretty well. I'll write that down. Um, I think that's a great way um, to frame it. And actually having, you know, I had a 10 years at Microsoft, so very, very corporate environment, but certainly uh, I felt that you had to fit a mold. And it was on leaving that I went, oh my God, um, I could take off the armor. <laughs> and, and nobody told me I had to behave that way. I mean, there is corporate culture and there are ways in which you are expected to operate um however i don't think anyone ever said to me don't be yourself so there was a lot of my perception that in order to succeed you had to look like that and it's all perception tony you're completely right kpmg's mantras bring your whole self to work they encourage that but because of mm -hmm. social pressures or perhaps our experience or trauma we're told disruption is bad uh, mm -hmm. put on a facade um but only until i remove that facade and was vulnerably myself that's when opportunities came around because a framework that I use I have this kind of concept that you only need one true connection in life yeah. all, that's all you need and what I mean by that what I mean by true connection is that you expose all your vulnerabilities to that one individual you share your purpose your highlights your lowlights what you want to achieve and what they do is that they understand you fully and they connect you with someone else that shares any of those facets and then you meet them and then you expose the exact same version of yourself and it has a spider web compound interest effect. Mm. Um, but that only happens if you're unapologetically authentic. Yeah. Um, and like I, like I said, like you said, and like I said, these organizations, KPMG and, and perhaps Microsoft never once told us, you need to be this mold or you need to hide yourself from work. They encourage mm. it. That's just a social construct that a lot of us unfortunately have. Yeah deep man uh <laughs> final question i think yeah i think it's final question what's next then david come on i mean you've already gone yeah spoke to the queen set up a social mobility network chair the uk one now what next once you pass your exams of course that must be on the cards <laughs> definitely exams are at the forefront but you know what This seems really bizarre and a bit grim, right? But <laughs> as you're as you're aware, I get so every single day I have this positive affirmation that I write down in a gratitude journal, very airy fairy, but it got me through lockdown and it's something along the lines of uh I will be recognized by society for my impact on our communities. I will be an inspired leader. And I feel like I almost ticked that box by meeting the Queen. And yeah. another event that happened on in my life very, very young was that my mum passed away when I was twenty-one. And both of these events, meeting the Queen and losing your parents, you would assume that that would happen when you're 50. Perhaps not meeting the Queen, she would be away by then, but meeting, <laughs> royal, meeting royal family at that point, being yeah, recognised yeah. for an achievement. 
yeah. your, your parents passing away, you think that would happen very late on in your life. So for mm-hmm. me, the rest of my life, because it's happened so early on, yeah. my brain almost kind of interprets this as like, you're towards the end, you're old. But the thing is, I'm not. So for me, this extra spell is a bit of a bonus. Yeah. I have completed what I wanted to complete in life. And unfortunately, this event that's happened uh, so early on, I am now almost liberated to go off and explore and do what I want. So it's a quite a bizarre way to answer that. And it's quite grim and deep. Um, and I also think long-term planning is so overrated uh, yeah. because it narrows every decision down a single decision filter. I'll say no to so many opportunities because I'm dead set on one goal. I think goals yeah. are great, definitely, but you'll lose out on spontaneous events and spontaneous career moves. Um, I guess what I do have is like a guiding principle, a North Star is what I call it. Yeah. And it's almost like I know like Jeff Bezos and Elon Musk use one. Jeff mm-hmm. Bezos is something along the lines of, will this improve customer experience? So any decision that he's framed with that day, he navigates it through. Yes, it does. So I'll implement it or no, it doesn't bin it. Same with Elon Musk. Has his, will this get me closer to Mars? And if the answer is yes to it, he'll implement it at no matter what cost. If it's no, he'll bin it. And for me, for me, I have my guiding principle and it's to do good for others. So as long as I follow that, I don't really know or care what's next uh, because I know if I take that North Star, then uh, I'm pretty much fulfilled. Very cool. Very cool. I've only recently started doing uh, three good things, three good things every day and uh, working with a coach who builds around writing, really interesting woman. And actually, it got me through our family holiday. I was like, <laughs> oh, my God, there must be something good that happened today. Uh, but I am seeing the benefits and um, had initially thought, oh, is it a little bit, you know, airy-fairy? But it is proven, proven to work in terms of increasing your positivity. And I guess if you seek positivity and practice gratitude, you are more likely to create more positive actions and outcomes in your life I guess definitely and it has like a positive effect on networking if you do good for someone else or you help someone else they'll never forget it they'll never forget it and when you need a helping hand they'll always be there yeah yeah it's so true it's so true um and I felt you've done something good for me today David and for the people listening oh it's a pleasure I've enjoyed every minute of it I always love having a laugh with you and uh, hearing your story and sharing mine and so um where can people if they want to tune into your podcast how can they find it where is it they can find it on spotify apple music and all audio streaming services at the development by david podcast you can find me on linkedin at david mcintosh and on instagram at development by david brilliant thanks david it was a pleasure thank you thank you You've been listening to University Challenge with me, Tony Kent, and my special guest, David McIntosh. How good was that? It was good, wasn't it? Um, If you agree, um, please do share this with someone that you think might appreciate it. And uh, if you are so inclined to do, give it a review on your favourite podcast platform. It's on Apple now, so I I might be doing something right. Um, I look forward to sharing the next episode with you. Thank you.